Let us pray. Eternal God, help us to listen for your word and look for your light. By the power of the Holy Spirit, renew our minds and our hearts so we may discern your will and respond in faith. Amen. Our sermon text today is from the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 1, verse 8, continuing through the second chapter, verse 10. Hear this ancient story of scripture. Now, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying 
and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How many times have you watched The Sound of Music? I can't count how many times I have, and I still never tire of it. And there is one particular scene in this musical that is my absolute favorite, hands down. And maybe it is yours, too. It is the scene after Maria and Captain Von Trapp have returned from their honeymoon. They've devised a plan to flee their native Austria so the captain can avoid his summons to serve in the Navy of the Third Reich. You remember the singing family's wildly popular performance at the music festival? And instead of making their way back on stage for an encore, the family slips out to hide in the abbey where Maria once aspired to be a nun. But they are spotted and outed by Liesel's boyfriend, Rolf, and Nazi officers climb into their car to chase after the Von Trapps. But their car won't start. They are furious and frustrated that they have been thwarted. And the family escapes. Meanwhile, two meek and mild nuns sheepishly bring themselves to the mother abbess, said one. Reverend Mother, I have sinned. I too, said the second. And they look at each other and pull out from their robes the distributor and coil that kept the Nazi officers from chasing the family. My favorite scene. In the words of the ordination questions of the Presbyterian Church found in our church constitution, these two nuns serve with energy, intelligence, imagination, and love. There is no shortage of energy, intelligence, imagination, and love in today's Old Testament text that features five women. Now, when I read through all of the lectionary texts for today to choose the one that I would preach on, and I had the rare opportunity to focus on a story with not one, not two, not three, not four, but five women playing leading roles. Well, that was too hard for this woman to resist. Think of it. It is as if it's Oscar night. The nominees for best male actor in a leading role are nowhere to be found. 
and all five nominees for Best Actress in a Leading Role come from the same film. It's a rare thing indeed, hashtag Oscars so female. I would like to lift up these five women today. Women struggling to preserve life in the midst of death-dealing destruction. Women calling on their abundance of creativity to defy a murderous campaign of genocide. Women whose wildly imaginative resourcefulness aligns with God's saving work throughout history. Women who serve with energy, intelligence, imagination, and love. So we begin with the first two nominees for Best Actress in a Leading Role, Shifra and Pua, midwives to the Hebrew women living as foreigners in Egypt. Remember, the Hebrews had fled there during Joseph's time to escape the famine that was in their own land of Canaan. But since then, they have grown and they have thrived as a people, evidence of God's fulfilled promise to them. And yet, as things often go when a new regime comes to power, the conditions under which immigrants are initially invited often change. The new pharaoh obsesses over them and sees them as a threat. So those who were once welcomed are now exploited. Those who came seeking relief now buckle under the weight of backbreaking labor. Those who arrived of their own free will now find themselves indefinitely detained. And the Pharaoh orders the two midwives to kill all Hebrew baby boys as they are delivered. However, Shifra and Pua willfully defy the Pharaoh's order. They know that their call is to bring life, not death. And these women are up to the challenge. They are agents of creation, not destruction. They risk their own lives to let the baby boys live. They refuse to cave to what is convenient or even commanded. They honor their holy call to bring and preserve life. And these women are also clever. When Pharaoh confronts them for their disobedience, they work themselves out of a pickle. There's nothing we can do. These Hebrew women are so strong, they've already given birth by the time we get there. And you can almost see Pharaoh throw up his hands in frustration and turn around and stomp off. You see, the midwives employ energy, intelligence, imagination, and love to preserve the life of their people and to carry on God's promise. Yet Pharaoh is stubborn. If the midwives won't do his dirty work, surely his own Egyptian people will. So he now enlists all of them to rid the land of Hebrew baby boys by throwing them into the Nile. 
You see, then it would only be a matter of time before the Israelite people would be eliminated altogether and enter the next actress in a leading role, an unnamed Hebrew woman who gives birth to a baby boy, and she looks at him and sees that he is good. Yes, although our NRSV translation obscures it, the text in its original Hebrew echoes God's reaction to all that God created in the Genesis story. The woman looked at her son that she had born and saw that he was good. Now, she could only hide him for three months before he gets too big and too vocal and too squirmy that his life would be at risk. And what happens next is full of irony, and by my read, must have been divine inspiration. She puts him in a basket. And in the Hebrew, again, literally, an ark. Another direct echo of God's creative, saving, and life-giving work in the story of Noah and the flood. So mom puts the baby safely tucked in the infant-sized ark and floats it among the reeds in the Nile River. And instead of becoming a place of death, as Pharaoh thought it should be, the Nile becomes the preserver of life. And the reeds in which the baby is hidden, they foreshadow God's future saving work when the Hebrew people will escape slavery in Egypt. You see, the Hebrew term for reeds is the same one used to describe the waters that would part and make their future escape possible. Another example of energy, intelligence, imagination, and love. Enter our fourth actress in a leading role, Pharaoh's daughter who sees the crying child floating in his basket. She imagines what his fate could be. And she defies the deathly command of her father. And she, too, answers the call for life-giving compassion. Even she uses her energy, intelligence, imagination, and love. And then finally, there is the baby sister, actress number five, who has clearly inherited her mother's cleverness. She's been watching from afar and quickly imagines the life-giving opportunity unfolding before her as the Pharaoh's daughter discovers the baby boy. I can find you a Hebrew woman who will nurse and care for the child for you, of course. She conveniently leaves out that little small detail that the child's nurse would actually be his own mother. The Pharaoh's daughter likes the plan, and not only is the baby's life saved, God's saving work in history carries on yet again. This baby is Moses, 
the one who would lead God's people out of slavery toward the promised land. And yes, by now, I hope you can say it with me, the sister serves with energy, intelligence, imagination, and love. The tale is both personal and political, about the saving of individual lives and about resisting an empire that seeks to consolidate power and control wealth. And as with all of our sacred scripture stories, the good news here comes about not just through the creativity of women, not just through the creativity of humanity, it comes through God's own creative ability to work even through those who would oppose God's life-giving will. For even Pharaoh's own actions will ultimately serve God's purposes. It's what Terence Fretheim calls divine irony. God using the weak, what is low and despised in the world to shame the strong, God works through persons who have no obvious power, and that entails much risk and vulnerability for God. There are non-scriptural examples as well. One that comes to mind is told in The Zookeeper's Wife, both the book and its film adaptation. And it recounts the true story of Antonina Zabinski, who, along with her husband, saves 300 Warsaw Jews from extermination during World War II. The actions of war devastate their zoo and its animals, and the zoo is closed. And then Antonina and her husband devise a plan to turn it into a pig farm. They will feed occupying troops, they said. But under that cover of seeming legitimacy, they secretly and successfully hide Jews in abandoned zoo cages. It too is a stunning, life-saving tale of their energy, intelligence, imagination, and love. And it causes me to also wonder what God's creative spirit had to do with it. One of the hopeful takeaways for me from this Exodus narrative is that there is a role for each of us in what God is doing in the world. Whether you feel weak or powerless or oppressed, like the lowly midwives or baby Moses' mother and sister, or whether you occupy a position of favor or even power, like Pharaoh's daughter. If you are on the outside because you don't fit neatly into some predetermined box, or because of prejudice, or because of your economic or social location, or because of your age, God has a role for you. God has given you particular gifts of energy, intelligence, imagination and love that the world desperately needs. Gifts that could even subvert the forces that keep people oppressed. 
And if you occupy a position of favor or power because of your economic means or your position at work or in the community or simply because of who you were born to, God has a role for you too. God has given you your own particular gifts of energy, intelligence, imagination, and love that the world also desperately needs. When it comes to making the world right and just, God is an equal opportunity employer. The issues in our own context resonate deeply with those of the Exodus text, notes Dennis Olson. Issues of race and politics, religion, gender and power, the war on terror, debates over immigration policy, the inequities of our global economy, congregational mission and hospitality to the stranger, and all manner of suffering and bondage that threaten individuals and families. Sadly, it's common in many parts of the wider church to bemoan a perceived lack of resources to push back against such suffering to carry on God's life-giving mission. And yet I would like to challenge that perception. For a long time I have believed it's not resources that we lack, it's imagination that we lack. But I have to say that this amazing story of five women and a baby causes me to rethink even that assessment. For in light of both of today's texts, from Exodus and from Romans, it's not that we lack imagination. We don't. It's that we neglect to employ the energy, intelligence, imagination, and love that God has already given us. It's already there, hiding in plain sight waiting to be used. Just think of the possibilities. Amen.